In your own words, what do you think is the most important card to find off of a Tainted Pact? Oh, it has to be Hallowed Fountain. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Playing With Power podcast. The podcast where we talk about all things CEDH, EDH, and Magic the Gathering. I am your host, Ryan, and today we are going to be talking about CEDH tournaments. Entering them, playing them, winning them, and just how are you going to get started? So we have brought on a great guest today to help us with this topic, and his name is Morgan, and he is also known as Spleenface on the internet. Hey Morgan, how you doing? Thanks for joining us. Why don't you tell everyone a little bit about yourself? Uh, hi everyone. Uh, as uh, as Ryan said, I'm Morgan, also known as Spleenface, and I'm uh, super excited to be here. And uh, I... Uh, you know, I have a, a few different things that I'm, uh, that I'm known for in the, in the CEDH community. I'm a member of the Into the North podcast, uh, as well as the Mind Sculptors, both podcast and gameplay series. Uh, I stream on Twitch with Team Turn 3, and, uh, I'm a moderator in, in a few different, uh, places, the, uh, the CEDH Nexus and the, uh, subreddit. So obviously you have the pedigrees that I could only aspire to have. So <laughs> like uh, you should be interviewing me right now. No, I'm just kidding. You're like you obviously are the expert. So super awesome to have you. Thank you very much, Morgan, for being on here. Um, so before we dive into today's topic, a quick shout out to our sponsors. That is TCGplayer.com. That is Dragon Shield. And that is viewers like you from Patreon. Uh, whenever you're buying product, try to buy it from the TCG player links in the description below. You get really great prices on all of your cards, your singles, your accessories, etc., etc., and you get them all while still supporting your local game store. Um, whenever you buy those products and get those products, make sure to put them in Dragon Shield. Uh, Playing with Power is a huge supporter of Dragon Shield. They are our number one pick for accessories. They are amazing, and they stand behind their quality. And then finally, really big shout out to all of the viewers like you. So when you support us on platforms like Patreon, you help us bring this content to you. You get all kinds of great perks in return. Uh, so access to our Discord, behind the scene footage, live stream of whenever we record games, uh, all of those different types of things. You even have some tiers that allow you to be on an episode with Playing With Power. So check out the link for Patreon in the description, and we hope to see you there. All right, so without further ado, let's go ahead and dive into today's topic. So we're going to be talking today about tournament play. Hey, I've been playing CEDH for a while. Um, I'm really thinking maybe about doing a tournament, but I'm a little scared. I'm a little nervous about how to get in, you know, to start this tournament, taking that first step. And so we brought on Morgan today to really help talk us through kind of what that looks like getting started and for lack of a better word getting your feet wet in this whole tournament play scene from cdh so morgan let's just start us off tell us about some of your experience in the cedh tournament scene sure so uh, i've uh, i've been a bit of a tournament grinder for for a while now um i've uh i got my start in 2018 when the subreddit was doing uh, cockatrice tournaments somewhat frequently um, and that was, uh, how I made a bit of a name for myself, uh, with my Muldrotha list. Um, and so those, I, uh, I think I top forward one and, and lost in the semis on another. Um, and then, uh, over the last couple of years, I've, uh, I've played in the, uh, I played in the time twisted tournaments, uh, three and four. Uh, I think I top 16, the 
the Time Twisted 3, and then Top 4, the Time Twisted 4. Uh, I also, with some of my podcast co-hosts, we uh, we played in the Nexus Super League, and we took down the first season of that, and then uh, just missed the cut on Top 4 in the second season. <laughs> um, and then... Um, I, this year I've been playing in the uh, the Tier 1 Con online tournaments, and I won the first one of those, and then uh, top forward the next two playing some some spicy lists that were decided on by, by Twitter polls. <laughs> uh, and then uh, I played in the Marchesa tournament and uh, was able to take that one down uh, in March, as uh, as the name might, uh, might suggest. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've... Uh, played in in my fair share of tournaments i'd say um and uh you know obviously winning is winning is nice but uh i i think that like tournaments are fun and that's that's definitely why i play them um you know you don't enter them for prizes god knows i'm not uh, not trying to support my magic hobby by by winning CEDH tournaments. Uh, I enter them because I like playing CEDH and fundamentally that's what you do in a tournament. And uh, so if you like playing CEDH too, which is likely if you're watching this podcast, then I, uh, so. I definitely <laughs> recommend giving it a whirl. Uh, and, you know, just in the, for the sake of transparency, I have also scrubbed out of a few different tournaments. So, you know, it happens. Um, <laughs> And, you know, you just uh, pick yourself up and you enter the next one and uh, very low stakes. So don't worry if you make a big error or even just get unlucky or you didn't bring the right deck. Uh, it happens to everyone. Uh, you know, no one's on 100% of the time. And, uh, you know, losing is losing is part of the game. Yeah, I, that's really cool because you say the scrubbing out part i you know a lot of people don't always like to admit that part where you know like oh i didn't actually make that one but you know it, it, we always love to talk about our victories um but i think we draw a whole lot of experience on our you know losses if you will our quote unquote where we didn't make it um and so you definitely seem to be on the gamut of kind of all different kind of parts and processes of this whole tournament thing you definitely have the experience to back it up um, so let's say that I wanted to get into a tournament and, you know, like, oh man, you know, you, you've definitely done this. So it probably seems so easy to you because you've done it so many times, but you know, I'm, oh, I'm nervous. I'm sweating. You know, I don't, I don't really know how I want to take this first step. So a question that I have for you is how, what are some preparations that we might want to take before even entering a tournament um, from maybe like a deck building and gameplay perspective. We can dig into like maybe the logistics here in a little bit, but let's just start from the beginning. We need to bring a CDH deck. We need to, you know, get started. What preparations should we make before entering a tournament, before we even click that register button? So I think, I think the biggest thing is being comfortable with your deck. And I use the word, you know, you don't have to be like a whiz, you know, all the lines off by heart. You can, you know, execute your 70-part combo in five seconds or, like, all of that is nice. Um, and, you know, you can you can pick up little percentages on the margin here and there by, by being, you know, having your 10,000 hours with your deck or, or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, if you think about, you know, if you think about, like, that last 5%, 
if in a tournament you play eh, six games of CEDH, maybe, the odds that that, like, last little bit of expertise is what makes the difference between winning and losing in one of them is actually pretty low. So as long as you, you know, you know the general idea of the lines, you know sort of what sort of things are threatening, um, and basically how to play the deck so you can avoid making, like, you know, uh, you know, in chess, what they call a blunder, as opposed to you know a, an an inaccuracy or a, an error. Um, you know, don't abrupt decay your own permanent for no reason. Um, you know, as, you so, know, as we've all done at exactly. one point. Maybe. No, <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, obviously, like, uh, so yeah, you should know what you're doing at least to the extent that you can avoid making, I guess, like catastrophic errors. Um, people often go back and forth on. You know, should I pick the deck that I think is best into the meta, or should I uh, pick the deck that I'm most comfortable with? Um, I would probably err on the side of uh, you have to. You can do well with a deck that's off meta that you're very comfortable with. It's hard to do well with a deck that you just don't know what you're doing with. Now, maybe you can also you know you can pick a middle ground if if you have some experience with like your your off-meta stacks deck, for example, maybe this isn't the greatest example, but you, know, you, ha you have some experience with an off-meta deck. Maybe if you're a little bit more comfortable with the play patterns of an on-meta deck that is more similar to that, right? Like, don't, oh, I play stacks all the time. Let me pick up Turbo Nas and and just go for it. Like, obviously, you're gonna you're gonna struggle. Everything's totally different. But if you you know you you play like some you know very controlly deck maybe like you, you play like a rashmi control well like okay you you're used to the play patterns of like i need to stop everyone else from winning i need to accrue resources i'm trying to take the game long i understand what i'm doing with this like maybe pick something like a four color rashmi right like the thrasios vile control deck it's the same general idea you're accruing the value you're trying to stop people from winning but you know you have access to like consult and breach and just sort of more you know, you have more concise wins and more powerful tools because you're in four colors, you know, that might make more sense than switching to, like, a Timnacrom, even if you think Timnacrom is the best deck into the metagame you're going to face. Um, yeah, so so I think, like, knowing knowing what you're doing is more important than doing sort of the strictly best meta stuff. Um, but if you can find a middle ground, that often makes sense too you know you don't want to just pick one extreme over the other that's interesting because i would say that there's a lot of people that probably think to do that i'm not going to say do that um but maybe think to say well you know tevish krom's hot right now let's do some tevish krom and go in and just win this prize right now and they scrub out of the tournament and they're like i don't know what happened so from what i'm kind of gathering here it's kind of you're saying know your deck but also a little bit of know yourself too um yeah yeah i think that like obviously knowing your specific deck is helpful but knowing what your capabilities and strengths are um is is also like a very important facet of that you know i've played with some people who have like just laser you know laser tuned uh like threat assessment like they know you know they they catch what their opponents have done oh that person's cast a bunch of tutors and cantrips and card selection. I bet they're, you know, they're, they probably have a win, maybe even a couple pieces of protection in hand. Like, oh, that person, 
oh, they missed a land drop a couple turns ago, uh, and then I saw their hand, and then they've made land drops ever since, so, like, I know that their hand hasn't really changed much, like, things like that. Um, but then, you know, they cast an ad nauseum, and they're trying to do some, like, storm line with Yawgmoth's will, and they're just like, I, I, you know, they don't see the line. Or people who are the opposite, you know, they know, like, every little storm line and doomsday pile and whatever the heck. Um, but, like, they miss, they misevaluate board states. So, uh, yeah, knowing, like, what your strengths and weaknesses as a player are is also, uh, is also a very important thing uh, when you're when you're trying to enter a tournament. You can pick a deck that uh, that complements those strengths and weaknesses, and you can uh, you know you can try and leverage your opponents maybe to uh, to compensate for the weaknesses in gameplay. Interesting. Um, so, would you say that there's a cutoff to that? Like, to give some hypotheticals here, you, you know, like, hey, I. I have this, you know, I'm going to, I just love playing janky stuff and, you know, and I, I hate playing what would could be considered on meta. So I'm absolutely going to bring this polar opposite to everything else. Um, and I'm expecting to do just as well based upon this advice. Would you say that there's actually like a cutoff here where it's like, know yourself, know your deck, uh, but play to your zones only up to maybe a point where you might have to start considering other things, or is that really not true? Well, so I think that, you know, for example, I don't like playing meta stuff is not really, like, that's not so much a strength or a weakness. That's that's more of a preference. And if you're willing to, you know, if, you, if you're willing to accept that, you know, maybe you actually won't be, uh, you know, playing the best deck you could be playing, but it's going to be your deck and, you know, that, like, you're willing to pay that cost, that's fine. I mean, I've entered tournaments playing Moldrotha, Vanifar, um, Tazri with Zerda as a companion. Um, That's awesome. <laughs> That's like, really cool. <laughs> that one that one was uh, one of the aforementioned Twitter polls. I had to make a deck with a companion that wasn't Gigantha. Um, yeah. You know, like, and I've seen people win with their, like, super pet list. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Michael Levine, like the, the Heliod mm -hmm. Ballista guy. Yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. He played Lin Sivy before Heliod was printed. Uh, and he mm -hmm. actually had some, I don't think he, he like won any of the big tournaments, but he had some decent results playing Lin Sivy. Um, so you absolutely can win if you have a deck that, you know, you, you know what it's trying to do and you put it together well and you know how to play it. Um, but I think... I think a lot of it is just about being honest, right? And I think most people, if they're if they're honest, would admit that you know, like maybe Rashmi. I'll, I'll stick on this example because you know the naming convention is nice. Maybe Ra the tools Rashmi offers aren't quite as powerful as the tools Four Color Rashmi offers, um, or Curious Control, or whatever you call it. Um, and so, to the extent that you think that's true, you know, just factor that into like. Okay, well, I really I have a lot of experience playing Rashmi. Uh, maybe that maybe it is actually better for me because I you know, like I don't really know when to go for wins. You know, like I well, I'm putting consult in my deck. Like obviously, consult's not a difficult combo to execute. But if you're playing like a dedicated control deck, it can be a little tricky. You know, in four color Rashmi, for example, like do I tutor for win cons? Do I tutor for value engines? Do I tutor for you know some other form of disruption? Um, what am I, what am I doing here? Um, you know, maybe you go, you know what? I am actually going to bring the Rashmi, but 
uh, I think I think the key is just be be as honest as you can be, and sometimes that that might lead one person to a different answer than another, uh, even under similar circumstances, uh, just based on how you sort of appraise your own uh, capabilities and knowledge and experience. Hmm. That's actually really encouraging because I think that there are some people that will look at a tournament from the outside looking in and just saying, well, everyone's playing Turbo Naws right now and I hate Turbo Naws. And so the only way that I'm going to win is playing Turbo Naws. So I'm just not even going to bother. And I'm sure there are more than their share of people out there who say stuff like that. Um, And it's really encouraging to hear that, hey, you know, it's not all just you can only pick this deck to enter into this tournament. Um, one of the reasons I actually posed that question was uh, during the Marchesa, the Marchesa 2021 tournament that you actually uh, won with Razakats. Um, there were two things about that tournament that I definitely took away that I wanted to bring to this interview. Number one was uh, Arkham Dagson, top 13. Now, if you remember Arkham Daxon back in the Paradox Engine days, oh, rest in peace, was, it was actually pretty fun. and It was a very fun deck. I would play that deck to this day. If, it, if Paradox hadn't been banned. It's a good one, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was great. But then it got nerfed. And then I was so uh, not only surprised, but thrilled to see that Arkham Dagson top 13. And that was so interesting and cool to see that someone was like, yeah, I could have brought Grixis or I could have brought this, but I'm going to bring this mono blue Arkham Dagson deck and it made it that far in the tournament. And that was just so cool to see. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I think almost all of the tournaments that i've ever entered have had like a pretty solid number of of like very off meta stuff making it at least to like whatever the equivalent of the semifinals is uh some of the finals pods have been like have been reasonably uh i mean generic isn't necessarily the right word but like you know known meta decks um i mean although certainly like (laughs) i don't i don't know if I think a lot of people would not have considered Razaketh a meta deck like in in 2021. Um mm-hmm. yeah. But but like, you know, four color decks, consult decks, that sort of thing. Like mm-hmm. usually if you look particularly outside the top 4 of a tournament, there's at least someone uh like in the top 13, top 16, whatever that cutoff is, there's at least one person who has something just absolutely wild who's uh who's made it at least that far and sometimes even into the finals and sometimes they even win. Um, like the, so the first tier one con, uh, Ian, uh, comedian made it to the finals with, uh, with his Winota deck, right? Like, I mean, Winota is like kind of meta as a stacks deck, but it's certainly not turbo. Nose. It's certainly not consult, uh, which I mm-hmm. think, you know, no consult, it might play breach, but I don't think it would be considered a breach deck by, by most people. Uh, no, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so you know that's uh, probably not most people's idea of the meta, or uh, you know, in the second one, I, I mean, I was playing Frog, which there was a time when Frog was meta. I don't know that it's particularly meta now. Um, Ooh, don't don't let the Frog Discord let the, oh, let them oh you don't say worry, that. <laughs> I've told them to their face more than enough <laughs> no. times. Uh, You're a brave soul. Brave yeah, no, no, soul. I don't I don't say things behind the Frog server's back. Uh, but um yeah i think that i think that you know marchesa there was there was uh hisp with his um sakashima kodama deck uh Mm -hmm. and he actually uh won the 
the crack open a call time tournament which was the commander legends and call time uh commander like you had to use a commander from one of those sets uh tournament on that same list uh and then yeah you know there was arkham in the finals um i mean the or sorry not in the finals in the semifinals the finals pod um the other two decks were i mean roger silas uh, and then the Najila deck, but it was uh, it was a bit of an atypical one. It was the more like Staxy build, mm-hmm. um, which I definitely remember because he played Deafening Silence, and that uh, <laughs> interfered a little bit. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like I, I think that that um, people who are comfortable with decks and know what they're doing uh, and can find like you can find unique angles to attack on, you know, Arkham decks. And as an example, um, you know, the, the win lines after activating once are much less consistent. Like it used to be, you basically just had to cast a spell. Like you get paradox engine, cast a spell, untap, go get the, the flute and then just chain your, your free creatures into doing Arkham things. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, now the lines aren't as concise. Sometimes you have to, go for stacks first and then try and win later. Um, but for example, playing a commander that is a creature uh, and then casting artifact creatures, it's like pretty difficult for a lot of decks to actually deal with that, right? In, in a Turbo Nas meta where people are packing their dispels and miscasts and fluster storms and all of those it's like oh here's a creature can you can you counter this and it's like well my deck plays uh force of will which i don't have in hand uh pact of negation which i can't pay for and like maybe mana drain and then apart from that no i actually can't counter arkham um mm-hmm. so you know that that sort of thing like there's always there's always something you can find to attack even if you don't want to play you know what everyone else is playing Maybe you can play, you know, the thing that the answers to what everyone else is playing don't line up well against. Or you can play the hate pieces for what everyone else is playing. You can, you know, load up your deck on Rule of Flaws and Null Rods and then just laugh, point and laugh at everyone who's trying to cast Ad Nauseam. Um, <laughs> so, so yeah, there, there's, you don't have to just pick like, oh, here's the meta deck or even here's the exactly anti-meta deck. Um... There's always there's always a reason uh, you can, you can find you can find a deck that attacks on you know one of a, any number of angles um, and try and sort of have that be the the value proposition for the deck you're bringing. That's really cool. So going back a little bit to the know your deck portion, uh, one of the things that I think is important is like you said a knowledge of your deck. Um, and so not just bringing in just what you think will be um, something that will just win the tournament. You brought in Razakats to the Marchesa tournament and ended up winning. Um, what kind of, you know, because Razakats has known in that past to definitely be a more complex deck with some complex lines. Now, there are some things that have made it simpler, <laughs> but... I, like big, big air quotes here, simpler, you know, the lines aren't like 20 steps long anymore, but you know, they're definitely not Thoracle consult easy for lack of a better word. They require a little bit more in order to get there. Um, and the, and the reason that I asked this is it goes back into the know your deck kind of situation. Um, how well would you personally say that you 
had to know that deck before you felt comfortable playing in that tournament? Um, I, so I've played Razakats on and off for a long time, so that's not mm-hmm. maybe the greatest example of of like how well you have to know it because I, I happen to know it quite well. Um, I think that yeah. You put air quotes around the simple, like the lines being simplified. The lines have been simplified a lot. Like people, uh, I remember back when Scotty used to stream and he played Razakats and a couple of his guests would play mm-hmm. it occasionally. It was a thing that uh, Razakats was the only deck where chat was allowed to help you with your, your combo line. <laughs> because people mm-hmm. just kept messing it up and it's like, oh, I wait, no, this card's in my hand, I need it in my graveyard. Oh, this card's in my yep. graveyard, I need it in my hand. Um, and, and that's why I bring it up, because Razakets is kind of infamously known, at least in the past, for being somewhat complicated. So, like, you so, know, and guess the lines are something. So I think yeah, that now ahead. now Razakets is complicated on a little bit of a different axis, which is that you actually, you have to figure out, like, what you're doing in a pod, what your role is. Are you sort of are you trying to just develop like the craziest value engines of anyone in the pod? Like there were some pods where I just sort of looked at it. It's like this, we're going to be here a while. So like we're finding, you know, maybe it's like Faber elder or smothering tithe or something like that. Like, I'm just going to, I'm going to play this Faber elder. It's going to connect and get me an extra Tim to draw every turn. It's going to activate threats. You just once a turn. Um, and you know, that's, that's two cards in a scry from this one card every turn. And over the, five six turns i'm expecting us to sort of be in a bit of a stalemate you know that's going to make the difference or or smothering tie like i'll just have so much mana that uh that uh you know i'll i'll there there was a game where um i hard cast both villas and razaketh like it was like we're we're just (laughs) we're just stuck we're just stuck here i'm just building up mana uh well i guess we're just gonna hard cast these you know the reanimates are easy to counter the eight mana creatures are not easy to counter mm-hmm. um so you know that sort of thing but uh i think maybe a better example would be uh, i entered the second tier one con playing gitrog monster and that was a deck that i've played six games with Obviously, I have a bit of, like, before I'd entered the tournament, obviously I have a bit of an advantage. One of my podcast co-hosts, Noobzors, is he's played the deck forever, and I've talked about him with it. Uh, and so, like, I, I knew the lines, but, um, like, I I didn't necessarily know, like, okay, what exactly am I doing? Like, I'm cleanup sculpting. I have a basic idea of the cards I'm looking for. I want the, the Oblivion Crown. But uh, there were there were some, some lines that, uh like maybe i missed uh there was a there was a bit of a, in one of the games um i i sort of made an error i tapped poorly um i i'm still not sure if it was an error but i think there was a point where i had the option to keep a land that gave me access to colors or keep like a tech land that i thought would be useful and i wasn't sure like but but you know only taps for colorless like i think it was a homeward path um it was like oh do i keep this do i not um versus like buy you you know i only have two colored mana whatever it is um so like certainly there were some holes in my knowledge when i entered with that deck but you know i didn't i didn't have like discard outlet deck more and get rug monster and play and be like how do i win like you know i i had that sort of conception of here's what i'm doing with the deck um 
at least decently well understood. Um, and I think that, like, I mean, both of the examples that we were talking about here, both Razagets and Gitrog, are, like, probably up there in terms of complexity. In different ways, like, Gitrog gets all the combo lines, and Razakats, it's it's such a flexible deck that, um, you know, you, you really do have to have to pick your moment and, like, know your role in a pod. Versus something like, like an aggressive Turbo Nas, where, like, maybe you hold off for one turn to try and, you know get a more favorable window but generally you're just trying to assemble like some sort of win as quickly as you can um and you have such a like such a high density of rituals and fast mana that post ad nauseum is usually not that difficult um so so like i think particularly uh with some of these decks you 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 don't you know you don't need to have 10,000 hours uh to be comfortable enough to to enter a tournament you just have to be able to uh like i think the start would be being able to goldfish more or less properly like if you can execute your lines that's a first step and that's also an important step because it means you don't have to spend as much time thinking about your lines when you're playing um that's mm -hmm. one thing i often see people they're like planning out these like crazy storm you know, turns, like, I'm going to cast 17 spells, what's the line, how do I do this, how do I do that, and if you're, like, do I have the mana, if you're mathing all of that out, rather than paying attention to what your opponents are playing, um, then that can definitely come back to bite you, like, the number of games I've seen people just forget about, like, some hate piece in play, mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's the sort of thing that you can avoid if you're comfortable enough with your deck that you don't have to spend a huge amount of the time you should be focusing on the game, like running through lines in your head. Hmm. That's interesting. And I, I think you also brought up some really good points, too, where you're like, oh, well, I forgot about this hate piece, or, I, hey, I needed to assess this pod because I know we're in for the long run. So you said, you know, be able to efficiently goldfish the deck. Um, but... You actually you also brought in some things about you know for lack of a better word knowing your pod composition. So, what would you say to people so they know their deck? Um, what about other decks? You know, what advice would you give to people like about maybe knowing what your enemy is doing, what your opponents are doing? Talk to me a little bit about that kind of sure. Stuff. So I think that I mean obviously the better you know your opponent's decks, the better you know what to watch out for. The more the less likely you are to be caught off guard um and i think that uh we'll talk about this a little bit later in sort of more specific gameplay stuff but also the more uh the more you can use that information while you're playing particularly you know with regards to politics and and uh you know in your pod but i think if if for example uh if you went to the database and for every deck you're playing against if you read like that little two two sentence description and then, like, you knew sort of, like, the three key combo pieces or cards. Like, that's the kind of understanding that you generally want to have with a deck, right? So, like, you sit down, you see a commander you haven't seen before, and it includes, like, one of green or white. And you're like, all right, do I need to be expecting stacks? Like, is there going to be, like, are they going to be playing Rule of Laws? Like, are they going to be playing Collector Roof? And, like, sometimes you don't know, right? You might see, like, Threat. Sometimes you see Thrasios and Timna, and you're like, this could be, like, 
the you know the most like tricked out mid-range like nauseless every hate piece that they can conceivably run like some rule of laws some some you know they're playing collector roof and rest in peace or it could be like a fast nas variant or it could be razakats but you know sometimes you do know um and so if you if you sit down and you're never like you're never just totally totally like blindsided by something your opponent does like oh i had no idea that you know uh tatiova was a mystic sanctuary combo deck like Mm -hmm. that's the sort of thing where like if you can avoid situations like that i think you can you can pick up sort of uh, i mean there's always there's a law of diminishing returns with with everything right and so the more the more knowledge you have about your opponents the more you can pick up but the first, like, having just a basic understanding of what they're doing, like, how long do they want the game to be? Uh, what, How are they going to win the game? What are the hate pieces that they might play? What are the hate pieces that they can't win through, for example? Like, just those would be, like, that's enough to get you... That's, like, 80% of it, right? And then, and then 20% of it is, like, oh, uh, you know they have this value engine like that's actually really that's scarier with with this deck uh because of these reasons or you know they have this like oh they have some you know they have like a fiend artisan and so that could get like grand abolisher and then they're gonna do x y whatever whatever it is um you know oh they they'll really hate if i cast a time twister here because they have combo pieces that they need to be in their deck yada yada um Mm. like that sort of stuff is is like a, a lot of the knowledge about a deck is in that, but all of that stuff is really only going to be picking you up like a much smaller portion of, of, you know, being able to play correctly in the pods and against the decks you're playing against than like just having that baseline understanding. Um, like if you can, you know, cast, if if you, if, if they cast intuition targeting you, and got like tried to assemble some combo you should you know hopefully you can be like oh well i'm not going to give them you know underworld breach or or whatever like or maybe in some deck you're going like oh i actually can give them underworld breach because of these reasons or um like just having having some level of understanding uh will allow you both to make the correct play decisions but then also to uh make the correct sort of have the correct interactions uh, with your pod. Hmm. So I would say that there are some people maybe apprehensive about getting into a tournament, somewhat even talking themselves out of entering a tournament because they're saying basically, I've got this deck and, you know, I haven't played against every deck on the database, so there's no way I can be prepared. I'm just going to not even bother, you know. And from what you're telling me is, you know, you don't really need to basically have your deck versus every single deck and every sort of composition ever conceived. Sometimes you just need to get out there, get to your 80% and just get out there and do it is what you're saying. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, there are probably still some decks on the database that I've never played against. Um, but mm-hmm. you know, if you understand, for example, like, like a bunch of the decks are just like super commander centric and so you can just kind of attack the commander and if you you know like a lot of the decks that you haven't seen before if you can keep them off their commander then they're probably not going to be a huge threat right like like 
I don't know. You're like, I don't exactly understand how tie game turns works. Um, mm. You know, I know it involves taking two turns for every turn spell. I don't know how they get the turn spells back. I don't, like, how fast is the deck? But, like, you know, the deck's called tie game turns, and you understand that it's rebounding spells. Like, hey, maybe if they just don't have tie game, we can, we can you know, wrap this up. Or, you know, rebound is a cast from exile. Uh, perhaps, like, a Dranith Magistrate will, will solve this problem. Um, and so, like, a lot of, a lot of these decks, you can kind of have a general idea, even, again, just by, like, if you go to the database and read, like, the, the two or three sentence description of, like, oh, this is a fast ad nauseum deck, okay, I'm gonna make sure that I'm holding up interaction, like, especially, oh, they opened, it's a fast ad nauseum deck, and they opened with, like, a soul ring into a mana rock, like, okay, maybe we need to be holding up interaction a little sooner than, like, you know, maybe maybe tapping out on turn two is, is like, not something I can really afford to do here. Um, or, like, oh, this is a stacks deck, and they opened, they opened, you know, with, like, a whole bunch of mana. Like, okay, well, I'm just going to develop my mana as fast as possible because I don't want them to play, like, I don't want them to play a rule of law, and then I can't play my, my acceleration. Um, and they're probably not going to win on their turn because, you know, they're a stacks deck. They're not set up for, for fast wins. Um, so yeah, like, you know, you, you can have never played against a deck, but just have, having just like that most basic understanding of like, what are the kinds of cards that, that this deck is trying to play? And then, uh, you know, you can, you can make, I'm not even necessarily going to say the right decision, but you can make better decisions and like, you know, nothing is perfect. I think people have a tendency to, uh, something goes poorly. So they assume they made a bad decision or they maybe they even did make a bad decision in a specific case and they tend to just extrapolate that out all the time like like let's say you're playing against Marath stacks and you they they play like they just have a bunch of mana dorks like maybe they went like turn one land dork turn two lands like uh priest of titania something and they're you're like wow they're gonna have like six or seven mana next turn um and you're like well it's a stack stack they're probably gonna play maybe like a, a Null Rod or a Noof or maybe like a Blood Moon, Rule of Law, that sort of thing. And probably Mareth as well. Maybe they'll kill like my Timna. And then it becomes their turn and they just play like Dockside, Emil, make infinite mana, kill you. Like, sometimes that happens. That doesn't mean that you not expecting them to win there was like incorrect or that you made a bad decision because you didn't hold up a way to stop that combo. Um, you know, sometimes, sometimes people do just have it and you can't mm -hmm. always know, like, like the, you know, someone gets wheeled and then you play an opposition agent and then they untap and cast Oracle and consult. And you're like, well, they, they got wheeled into it. You know, that, that again happens. Um, so, so yeah, definitely don't expect to know perfectly what your opponents are going to have or going to do. Um, and just because you were surprised once doesn't actually mean you were wrong about what they were likely to have. And uh, definitely don't sort of over-evaluate uh, hmm. what is ultimate. Like, there's a difference between having a lot of data and having high-stakes data, right? Like, oh, this card was terrible in this one game in this one tournament is a lot less useful than, like, I've played 20 games with this card and it's underperformed a little bit every time right like mm -hmm. 
Like there, there's this is a format of incredibly high variance, and so you, you know, the more variance there is to an extent, the less, the less you can expect that sort of having quote unquote perfect knowledge is actually going to translate to success. And so the more you can get away with just having general knowledge. Yeah. So you can only take so many swimming lessons before you just, you have to get into the pool. Yeah, exactly. Basically. You know, you can only pretend to do it so many times before you actually just have to get out there and do it. Um, and that's, that's, I think that's very, very true, you know, uh, and I think that's very insightful to say, you know, don't, don't go out there, uh, you know, and say, I've got to super duper prepare. And then somebody, like you said, did the dockside a meal and, and I wasn't prepared. And that's, this was my doing. I think there's this certain degree of grain of salt that has to come into some of these things. Like you said, wheel into Thoracle consult and I just lost. Well, that wasn't necessarily you. Sometimes they just had it. Um, and so I think that leads to a really good next point. So, all right, you know, you've convinced the audience, you've convinced me I'm, I'm, you know, enough of this waiting around. It's time to go and it's time to sit down, you know, sign up, sit down at our first pod at an actual tournament. So here we are, we're sweating bullets, you know, um, you know, we're sitting down at our first table, we're in the tournament, we're in the first pod. Give us some tips or advice or at least thoughts about how to get through this tournament. We're sitting down, it's turn zero, you know, guide us through. Yeah, it. so uh, the first thing you do is you check the names of all your opponents. And if one of them is Spleenface, uh, he has a terrible hand, he doesn't have anything. Don't rely on him for interaction. <laughs> Don't, he's not going to be able to win anytime soon. Don't. He's he's the boat yeah, anchor yeah, of that pot. Just, so just, just, just ignore him. him. Just He'll disregard. just be off, you know, doing, try, <laughs> trying to claw his way back into the game. Um, exactly. So that's step one. Uh, so step two, I mean, we've already talked about, this is going to be assuming you have a general basic understanding of what it is that your opponents are trying to do. Um, that means you have some information. You, you also have information, like you have some hidden information, you know what's in your hand and your opponents don't. Um, but essentially, a huge amount of... Like people talk, you know, people have said there's no politics in CEDH. And I think that there's kind of... To the extent that that's true, it's just an equivocation on the definition of politics. Um, I think that politics, like the, what people mean when they say there's no politics in CEDH, is they mean that there's not, uh, people don't make uh, deals that are like bad for them for influence reasons outside the game. Like they don't go, oh, I'm going to you know, I'm going to do this for you, you know, either because something happened last game or because like, you know, I want to see your deck do its thing, or I don't want this person to win because they destroyed my, you know, like, they destroyed, mm -hmm. they cast Armageddon, I don't want them to win, so I'm going to help you, or whatever it is. Like, that sort of stuff doesn't happen. But there's sort of a different politics, and it's it has to do with threat assessment. Um, and I think that this is sort of an area that in CDH is discussed a lot, but is kind of under-discussed in Magic as a whole because there's no such thing as threat assessment in 1v1 Magic, right? Like, your opponent is your opponent. Everything they do is threatening. Um, and it's mm -hmm. exactly as threatening as it is to you. It's not more threatening to somebody else or less threatening because 
there is nobody else um so like the the sort of magic theory articles haven't necessarily like caught up with with that sort of topic just because there's not real like true competitive sanctioned play in this type of game um so so the politics that you're trying to do is you're trying to convince people that something is uh like you 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 essentially are trying to convince people it's usually hard to convince people that you're not a threat um unless you actually aren't or have like i just all of your threat is hidden uh which we'll get to but you know if you look like you're in a somewhat normal position like you've been making your land drops you have some mana rocks or whatever you've drawn a couple cards from from something you know you're not like hellbent uh it's hard to convince people that you're not a threat but you can convince people that other people either are and sometimes even are not threats and i think one of the things that people like they think when when you think about trying to min max uh min max you know a game uh there's there's a you know there's an old maxim you know never interrupt your opponent when they're making a mistake that's fundamentally not true in cdh and it's not true because in certain circumstances the other maxim the enemy of my enemy is my friend is also somewhat true um and these are both sometimes true sometimes not true and they will shift a lot throughout the game but like for example um you think a table's light on answers like people just don't there's not a ton of cards in hand people aren't holding up a lot of mana and you you think someone like might be going for a breach combo you don't necessarily want like if you think player a is gonna try and breach combo soon you don't want player b to abrupt decay player c's soul ring like that is actually bad for you or even like a slightly less contrived example how about a ristic study right like ristic study is a scary card it can draw too many just too many cards um mm -hmm. but if you think that there's not a good answer to the breach and first of all ristic study makes it a lot harder to win with breach right because you, you're probably going to be drawing a whole bunch of cards for the person with the ristic study and abrupt decay also answers underworld breach like it might actually be worth it to step in and say like hey maybe don't do that uh keep that up because i think player a is gonna go for a breach um and i think that's like one of the most powerful things you can do is like defend defend one of your opponents right like obviously saying like hey don't destroy my stuff because he's scary you have kind of an ulterior motive right like, like it's very easy for your opponent to mm -hmm. go well obviously you don't want me to destroy your stuff it's your stuff but when you say i don't want you to destroy his stuff or her stuff um it it i think people sort of sit up and take notice because then it's like oh okay well now there's like a little bit more of an it's it's much less direct self-interest um and so you can try and i mean I, I use the word manipulate um i think that word has negative connotations and i don't mean mm -hmm. it in that sense but i just mean like if you can bring things to your opponent's attention that you think will help them make decisions that are better for you and often for them as well 
um, that is sort of how you can pull out wins, right? Every single thing that you don't have to answer, um, not only, like, if one of your opponents answers something else one of your opponents is doing, not only is that threat now gone, but also one of the pieces of interaction that your opponents have is gone. So that's like, that is mm -hmm. two things that are somewhat threatening to you winning the game, being, you know, interacting with each other and canceling both each other out. Um, and so every time that happens, your, your odds of winning go up. Um, and so that's where you want to try and, uh, and, you know, think about the things that you can win through the things that you can't win through. Um, going back to the Ristic study example, not only are you worried about another opponent winning with breach and you think this abrupt decay will stop it, but like whether or not you want that Ristic study gone, even though it's obviously a very powerful card for one of your opponents might depend on like if, if two people are playing turbo Nas and you're playing something that like doesn't cast that many spells, um, then like maybe you're actually more okay with this Ristic study because it's, it's interfering with your other opponents more than it's interfering with you, even though it's not good for you to have, for your opponent to have a Ristic study in play, you know, on the balance of things, it's much worse for your mutual opponents than it is for you and it might actually hold people back and you know so that sort of thing um if you can use the information that you have to uh to make your opponents make decisions that are you know better for you and also sometimes better for them uh you can get advantage and that's where also knowing uh knowing what your opponent's decks are doing can come in because, like, a couple of times in games, for example, uh, I've, like, pointed out lines to people who didn't see them, right? It's like, oh, this person has, uh, this person has, you know, Fiend Artisan in play. Or they have, like, a Wishclaw Talisman in play. And then you go, like, oh, well, they can just find this and that combos with their commander and then they win. And people have been like, oh, mm -hmm. oh okay, well, then let's, let's not, you know, do that. Like, there was a trying to remember where it was but there was a game where uh someone tried to they were trying to reanimate a sire of insanity that like ostensibly would have left them in a good position until someone pointed out that one of their opponents both was playing ad nauseum and had a wishclaw talisman in play that's like so we're all gonna discard our hands they're gonna untap tutor ad nauseum cast it win all right that like that's uh <laughs> You know, being able to point that out is something where, like, okay, let's not put the Sire of Insanity into play. Let's reevaluate. Let's do something different. Um, and just being able to, like, you know, that's a combo piece. Like, saying that's a combo piece, those exact words can sometimes be incredibly powerful. Um, and it just mm. puts your opponents on alert. Yeah. Like, oh, okay maybe they ask you oh what what does it combo with now you like you demonstrate some sort of understanding and that makes people inclined to listen to you obviously you know it's it's sort of like sort of like how with hypnosis you know you can't like hypnotize people into doing you know things they would just absolutely never do or like the opposite like you can't hypnotize someone into 
jumping through a window. But, like, mm -hmm. you can hypnotize them to, you know, walk and make a silly face or, or whatever. Um, similarly, you know, if you try and just, like, tell people to do things that are obviously counter to their interests and obviously, like, really bad decisions, then, yeah, no one's going to listen to you. But if you can, you know, steer people a little bit one way or the other, um, then that's uh, that can be huge in in winning or in in you know pulling out wins um, in games. So we see this kind of thing in casual EDH all the time, uh, and not in the necessarily in the one v one formats. Um, like you said, you have one enemy in a one v one format, whereas you strike up alliances that are that are forged and broken, maybe even in the matter of a turn. <clears throat> I think there's a common misconception that a CDH tournament is straight faced, all business. Don't talk to me. Just play your cards like you were playing some sort of s, you know, like some sort of open series or something like that. And you're saying to us that that's not necessarily the case, that you can talk to people uh, and maybe help to do some politics to make this, to, to lend some stuff into your favor at an actual tournament setting. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, when you have four people, um, I mean, so there's a couple things that contribute to this. First, the, the four-player nature does actually mean that there's... Um, like, there are people who have an incentive to give you information. Whereas, like, that's pretty much never true in a 1v1 format, right? Giving your opponent information is, like, st strictly a downside unless you're trying to trick them. So, in that case, like, why would they listen? Um, whereas, you actually do, like, you have things that are threats to multiple people in a four-player environment so sometimes it can be useful um the other thing is that the format is just like a little bit less explored and people like uh the people who you know do really well at like a modern grand prix for example they have like they have a, a very strong understanding of the format they've been playing it for years you know they know more or less what everyone's doing what each deck does um and, and, like, in CDH, that's not fully true. Like, sometimes, yeah, you get into a pod full of people. They all know exactly what they're doing. You know, they see their opponent's commanders. They know exactly what to expect. Um, and, you know, they play... I'm not going to say perfectly, but, you know, they, they very rarely make, uh, make play errors. But sometimes you, you know, are playing with people who... Hey, they're entering their second tournament ever. Right? Like, not everyone is a tournament grinder. Not everyone's been playing the format for however long you think it takes to become, like, an expert or, or whatever. You know, not everyone has years or thousands of hours or whatever metric you're using under their belt. So, there's, like, a lot more cause for, uh, you know, a little bit of, like, spontaneous... I mean, to an extent, it's, like, spontaneous in-game coaching. Um, sort of, like... Uh, if you've ever been to if you ever if you ever been to a pre-release and you know there, there's the guy who's like he 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 plays you know the the like weekly tournaments he does really well he he knows all the cards in the set this that the other and then like after the game it gives you a couple pointers on your deck right like that sort of thing I mean obviously people generally don't do the same thing with decks in CDH but 
there's a bit of like there's a bit of an element of hey we're actually like i you know we can we can learn something here we can improve a little bit here because it's less of this like we all know what we're doing let's just get down to business um environment mm -hmm. and obviously you know that like it is contextual some people i've played against it's like they don't want to talk some people are chatting the whole time um i would say if you're a newer player you know it, engage a bit because like even though it shouldn't matter if people think you're antisocial or they think like if they have some negative connotation from you because of how you're interacting like socially interacting during the game that colors how they view you in the game like they, they probably wouldn't be like oh i'm gonna destroy your thing because i don't like you but you know when you say like hey that's a threat someone who doesn't like you might be like why is he telling me this is he trying to trick me is he like you know so engage in sort of your best impression of normal social ways but you know if you're new maybe don't get too deep into the banter and the chatter and whatever because uh you probably do want to be focusing at least to a certain extent on your gameplay like if you're not super familiar with what everyone's doing then every second you spend not focusing on the game is a second that you might miss something yeah so now let's talk about maybe in the context of what you had just said about, you know, you know, having that camaraderie or whatever and uh, having that, you know, the, that banter back and forth, if you will, and, and, you know, actually talking during a tournament. What do you do in a situation where somebody has got you figured out, if you will? You know, they've, they've got you solved. You know, your, your tricks aren't going to work on me. Um, what do you do to, for lack of a better word, play the cards co close to your vest or, you know, conceal your power, if you will. What would you recommend to help aid you in a place where that kind of stuff isn't going to get you there? Sure. Normally? So I, I think that um, there are so, like there are cards that are sort of quietly powerful and cards that are loudly powerful. And you can also be, uh, you know, you can make it more or less uh, obvious when you're playing um so like you know a card a card that's usually loudly powerful would, would be something like uh like a mystic remora right like you announce every trigger for every card people have you know the mentality of like don't feed the fish they tend to like count how many cards a fish has drawn so like you're you're generally not going to be like getting away with a lot whereas something like uh, like a mana engine coupled with the Thrasios. Um, like, you know, Seedborn used Thrasios very loud. People are like, oh my god, activating Thrasios two or three times every turn. You're untapping every turn. You have all this mana. Like, this is really bad. But, like, even something like a Smothering Tithe, assuming your deck isn't like a big wheel deck, right? Because when you play Smothering Tithe, people are like, oh, if you're going to wheel, then. So maybe I'll pick, maybe I'll pick Faber or Elder as my, my big mana engine. Or like a priest of Titania that's tapping for five or six, or a carpet that makes three or four, like these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, like a Thrasios activation every turn cycle is like, I mean that that's better than a card every turn, right? That's like a card and a half. People have gone 
around and around on how valuable a scry is but yeah a card and a half yeah just from like your carpet of flowers or if you have faber elder and timna then that's like two and a half cards from just the faber elder um and so like playing cards like that and trying not to like make it super obvious another thing is like um if you space your thrasios activation out so for example let's say someone casts something scary um I'm, i've been picking on ristic study all day well why stop now your opponent mm -hmm. casts a ristic study if you have the mana for two thrasios activations um it can often make sense to be like uh in response i'll activate thrasios and then you reveal whatever it is it's not a counter spell um or it's a counter spell that doesn't hit ristic study whatever you put it into your hand and then you move on and then in the end step before your turn, you go, okay, I'm going to activate Thrasios again. Like, even something like that looks way less powerful than holding up eight mana throughout the entire turn cycle than activating Thrasios twice in an end step. Like, people, they, it's it's very easy to, like, there's so much going on in a CDH game that people can't keep track of everything that's happened historically. So the more things that happen all at once, the more likely it is your opponents are going to go, like, hey, wait a minute, that's that's like a huge problem and i think that that's why like timna for example has been arguably even more format defining than thrasios but for whatever reason like for a long time people thought thrasios was better i think that's maybe shifted a little bit recently as things have sped up but like even during mm -hmm. the flash hulk era the power of timna was like it was absurd and it, it was like what made that deck you know, it would have been a good deck without Timna, but like it was really what made that deck tick was like just turn one Landork, turn two Timna. Okay, I've got my value engine in play. You know, my deck's super low to the ground. Now I'm just gonna find this like this really powerful combo, whatever. Um, because yeah, w when you play Timna, you draw one card, maybe even two cards of combat, like. Post-combat, Timna trigger, I'll draw two. People are just like, yeah, it's a Timna doing Timna things. Whereas, like, okay, imagine if your opponent had Arcanus the Omnipotent in play. And mm -hmm. and then they're just like, oh, uh, I'll... Or, like, Azami. They have Azami and three or two other wizards. And the end step, they're like, I'm going to draw three cards. You're like, whoa, wait, what? I mean, it's really not that much more than, like, Timna and Thrasios, but it just looks... You're doing all three draws at once. It's like, it's an activated ability, not a triggered ability. Like, all of these things, for whatever reason, matter when people are trying to evaluate the board state. And so, uh, you know, trying to trying to not make it look like... For example, if you try and not make it look like you're accruing value, uh, but maybe, like, digging for something, that can actually like color people's perceptions right when you activate a thrasios in response to a ristic study it's like oh well he doesn't have an answer for ristic study maybe you even do right like you could just have the counter spell in hand but you're, you're like eh, i don't actually want to counter this ristic study for whatever reason uh when you do that people are like oh he's digging for an answer for the ristic study oh he didn't find it okay whereas when you activate all the thrasioses in your end step it's like oh he's he's you know generating value he's generating card advantage he's he's gaining advantage he's sculpting a hand he's all of these things um and those perceptions can can make a huge difference for how people for how likely people are to hold up mana for you or 
to pass to you, assuming you have the interaction for, uh, assuming you have the interaction for something. Like, going back to the Ristic Study example, someone casts Ristic Study, you have an answer. You don't cast it, but you activate Thrasius in response, and you don't find an answer. Later, someone casts an Ad Nauseam. Someone's before you in priority. They go like, well, he tried to find an answer for Ristic Study and didn't find one, so maybe he just doesn't have anything. I better counter this Ad Nauseam. Versus, like, if you just snap pass on the Ristic Study, they go like, eh, maybe just didn't want to counter the Ristic Study, and he still is holding an answer. Like, giving the impression that you wanted to counter the Ristic Study, but you couldn't, could make a huge difference. Um... This there's you know other things like uh, revealed versus hidden tutors. I think a big thing to do is to keep track of people's hidden tutors. You know, if I if I cast worldly tutor and put uh, Thassa's Oracle on top of my deck, alarm bells go off in everyone. If I cast vampiric tutor and then untap and draw for turn and pass, like, I mean. Vampire Tutor is is more or less strictly better than Worldly Tutor, like, assuming the two life doesn't matter in this specific instance, right? Like, I could have got Thassa's Oracle, but I could have got something. I could have got a wheel. I could have got anything. I could have got... could be Hull Breacher. could be Force of Will, because I already have my combo. Um, and people, I think, have a tendency to not like for whatever reason hidden tutors are quiet and revealed tutors are loud when really it should be the opposite because the the hidden tutors are are generally more powerful and more flexible um and so you know if you can for example if you can reveal tutor for things that aren't your uh that aren't your win condition so like uh i'm gonna enlighten tutor for mana crypt and vampiric tutor for underworld breach as opposed to if I do it the other way, then everyone sees that I have an Underworld Breach in my hand. So that's actually uh, an interesting point to bring up about... I like your analogy of loud versus maybe subdued or quiet because that is a really interesting way to approach it. And there are times when you're right, you know, you Vampire Tutor for your Breach, but you, you know, you Enlightened Tutor for your Crypt and everyone's like, oh, he's just ramping. We've, we've got time. And before long, you're like, oh, okay, now we're now we're in a really bad position. But there are just times when, for lack of a better word, you almost have to play loud. And or maybe I shouldn't even say that. Are there times? I'll, I'll present the question to you. Are there times when you just have to play loud? You know, you have to get that Ristic study down. Maybe you you have to go for that breach. Where are the circumstances or what kind of advice would you give somebody when a circumstance presents itself to play loud, as you said? Well, I, I mean, I, I think that I think that all of these are, you know, it's a preference to play uh, to play quietly when you can. But um, you do have to consider like Ristic Study is not a bad card just because like people think it's powerful and they realize how many cards it's drawing you, mm -hmm. right? Like drawing five cards is still really good. Um, and this is one of those things where, where like uh, we're, we're again talking about margins, right? Um, let's like, if you're, if you're really far behind, then you're probably just, you might have to play loud. And sometimes people will even recognize that like, Oh, this person, you know, they went last, 
they they didn't have like a super fast start like them playing a Rhystic study is actually not like the end of the world right like if if you're going last and you open land dork land Rhystic study that's like a very different thing than the person who opens like you know land soul ring rock turn to Rhystic study going second like that those are two very different it's like oh you have way more mana you know you you're you're still holding up mana with this Rhystic study you could have any sorts of things um if you could try and convince people that you tutored for uh a card that is not a win condition that can also be really good like let's say your hand has has the Rhystic study in it naturally if you like cast an imperial seal and then draw the card and then like that that can be like a little cute sequencing thing you could do you know you have like not a you have timna you know three lands and a dork it's turn three if you play imperial seal attack with timna draw a card ristic study people will just leap to the conclusion that you just tutored the ristic study and now you're casting it but like maybe you didn't right maybe you tutored for the fastest oracle and you're now casting the ristic study that was already in your hand Mm. um so you know you can look for opportunities to minimize how threatening you appear but again like don't I wouldn't say, like, invert your play patterns or, like, make wild decisions. This is, like, if you have the option, try and look for opportunity. I guess I would say look for opportunities to play quietly. But, you know, at a certain point, you're not going to win if you don't play your cards. So so give us some examples in your experience of tournament play of some things that you needed to do to get around tough situations. Sometimes people just need to hear a story or two about an actual tournament to help them, you know, take that breath of relief that it's not this abstract monolith and that it's actually just some people sitting around playing. So give us an experience or two that you've had in a tournament of maybe a tough situation and how you got out of it. Um, so in the uh, Marchesa tournament, I was uh, 3-0-2. I had two draws because uh, there were some stability issues with the Cockatrice server. Um, And that put me in second. And the way that tournament worked, it was a top 13 cut, which means whoever finishes first in pools goes to directly to the finals. And then 2 through 13 split off into three pods, and the winners of those also advance. Mm. Um, So... We like so I you know I'm in second place at three zero and two and I was thinking about you know uh, do I want to play another game um, if I can get to four zero and two then I'll be first uh, I did the math I was like even if I lose I'm still pretty much guaranteed to make top thirteen so what the heck uh, and I got into a game where uh, it was Tuna Gila's Kinnan and I was playing Razagats. And I think I was going third. And there was a turn one Najila, a turn two Najila, and then also on turn two, the Kinnan player uh, copied a Najila. So all of my opponents had a Najila, <laughs> and I didn't have, like, a, a way of dealing with them. Um, and then one of my opponents managed to tutor, and he got his Derevi. Um someone bounced his Najila, but we didn't really have like an answer for it. Um, and I wound up having to on just two lands, Neoform my only mana dork for a gilded Drake to steal the Derevi. 
um <laughs> like that so so now i'm on two mana i'm i've missed land drops i just had to sacrifice one of my three mana sources to stop someone from winning because nobody else could deal with it um so i was super far behind and uh but i i mean i had a derevi which i guess is is nice i could untap lands i guess so i could i, I could cast two mana worth of spells and then still hold up interaction actually i couldn't cast a spell to cost three but that's not important right um <laughs> so i wound up having to like i i realized that if i was stuck on two lands then i was just never going anywhere um so i wound up at a certain point just casting tainted pact and stopping at hallowed fountain like that one i cast tainted pact i flipped past uh you know a, a couple things that was like i'll take this hallowed fountain so that had a couple things first that got me my third mana which meant i could cast timna and try and get myself back into the game mm. it also sent a very strong signal to my opponents that i was in a bit of a rough spot there mm -hmm. um and so like that was what that meant was i had my third land i cast timna i connected with two creatures drew two cards untapped two lands because of the derevi i'd stolen mm -hmm. um and then all of a sudden that position doesn't look so bad right and then um that sort of went on for a couple turns and i wound up uh tutoring a gaia's cradle um and then just using gaia's cradle and derevi to activate thrasios a whole bunch mm. um and so like i was playing you know i took the Derevi not intending to use it as as like some sort of advantage engine or like to generate mana. It was a desperation move. It was like, okay, no one actually has a way of stopping this Derevi plus Najila combo. So uh I'm just gonna take the Derevi because that's that's the best I can do. Um and then, you know, I just sort of looked at it and went like, okay, this untaps lands, how can I let or like permanence, right? Um, primarily lands, but sometimes other permanents. Uh, so it's like, how can I leverage this? Well, I have Gaia's Cradle taps for multiple mana. Um, you know, I play like Bloom Tender and Faber Elder. Can I find one of those? Um, and so I wound up essentially building up to the point where I used Spellseeker rather than finding some sort of like Entomb Reanimate combo. I literally just went for Cyclonic Rift and cast it, overloaded it mid-combat by untapping Cradle with Derevi, <laughs> and uh, then I had a bunch of creatures in play, including a Derevi and a Timna, and my opponents were all reset. Um, and so it was like, I mean, yes, I did wind up, I think I wound up winning that game by getting Razageth into play and mm -hmm. assembling Oracle Consult, but really what won me the game was uh, you know, the, I mean, the Tainted Pact for the Hallowed Fountain, so I could develop the Timna so that I could, you know, resume playing the game somewhat normally rather than sort of being in this this like situation where i have no mana and i can't cast anything um and it also had the added benefit of making me look really non-threatening because i was spending such a powerful card tainted pact for something so arguably underwhelming in hallowed fountain um but again it it just looked like the the card that you need is the most powerful card in your deck, right? And <laughs> and so sometimes that card is Hallowed Fountain. 
Exactly, it's hallowed fountain. Oh, gosh. So what you just described was actually a perfect representation of what we talked about tonight. So first of all, it was knowing your deck. You knew that the answer to Derevi was Gilded Drake and that you knew that the only way you could really get to it was neoforming into it. You were in a behind position, but you managed to be able to disrupt that. And you also knew your opponent's decks. And you said, Derevi plus Najili equals, we go, I lose this game. So you knew that this was the critical moment to do that. So that goes into knowing your deck. You casting that Tainted Pact and saying, look, guys, I'm behind. I'm not the threat. You know, you're in the concealing your power phase. You know, when you're saying, look, guys, this is this is a value Tainted Pact, which everyone normally thinks is a lie. <laughs> yeah, everybody... <laughs> when you get when you get a hallowed fountain, people will kind of have no choice but to believe it. All right. So what's the final piece of advice that you would give everyone out there listening who maybe wants to get into a tournament uh i would say just do it like again you know you can think about it all you want you can theory craft all you want um you can be better or worse prepared uh but you don't you know learn to ride a bicycle without getting on one and and you know sometimes you fall over um but you you will never learn how to play in a tournament just by watching them or following them or reading about them. All right. Well, with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, so once again, big thanks to Morgan, also known as Spleenface. Uh, big shout out to all of our sponsors again. That's TCG Player, that's Patreon, and that is Dragon Shield. So with that, uh, tune in next time when we will talk about our favorite format and our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Thank you so much for watching and listening, and we will see you next time.